Hello, hello everyone and welcome to the most smartest game dev podcast in the world, House of Games. Can you say most smartest? I have no clue. Someone else who has no clue is my host, Odo. And if two clueless people was not enough, why don't we add two more clueless people to the mix in today's episode? Who also happens to be game developers, Mr. Jamie and Oswald. Very excited to have you here. But before you guys get to introduce yourselves, let's just open the door and see what's on offer for today's episode of House of Games. Welcome everyone to House of Games and especially welcome to our two guests Oswald and Jamie. Do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us who you are and what you do? Hi everyone, my name's Jamie and I'm the director of indie development studio Kittens in Time Space. It's a cool name for some kind of alternative rock band, but we just make games, not music. And as part of my day job, I also run a series of master's degrees at a local university. Hi everyone, I am Oswald de Bruyne. I am a freelance game person working under my company called Obsessive Science Games. I market myself as a technical game developer, designer and consultant. I've got a couple of clients now which I help with development and marketing. I also have some earlier projects which I made, some of which are Detective Hank, Badlands Road Trip and Beatrice. And my current project is not so much a game as it's more a kind of tool, it's called My Face Your Music, which uses videos of my face to generate your music, which you can now wishlist on Steam. How long have you been in game development, the both of you? Oh, golly gosh. I don't really like talking about my age these days. I've got grey hairs <laughs> growing under my chin, which is obviously a sign that age is finally catching up with me and youth is no longer on my side. But joking aside, I started game development quite young. I've been making games since I was about 15, 16 when Flash was still a thing. Later in life, I went to college to learn how to code. When I went to university, I was introduced to proper game development tools and from there, when I graduated in 2012, which is a long time ago now, when you look at today's calendar, uh, I decided I wanted to be an indie developer, very much inspired by some visitors we had at the university at the time. Local game developers used to come in and give talks and so on, and I really was just attracted to the whole indie thing. The idea of creative freedom and being able to work on your own projects, I get that it's a hard thing to do and I'm sure we'll come back to that later in the session, but since then I sort of got pulled into academia and I've been there ever since teaching on courses, which again is a nice job to have when you're sort of dabbling in game development because of the flexibility that it offers. And then he fast forward to 2023 and I'm still trying to release my first game. It's only taken me about 11-12 years, but here I am. I've been making games since, well, about the same age as Jamie, 13, 14 years old in BASIC. I'm a couple of years older than Jamie and I started in 1997, so Flash wasn't really a thing back then. The thing is, games were weird in that time, they're also weird now, but <laughs> I never really thought I could go into games up until like 2014. So I've studied Japanese studies at university, I then switched over to computer sciences. During that time I somehow got a lot of game-centered projects, so my bachelor thesis for Japanese, my bachelor thesis for computer sciences and my master thesis are all about games, which is a long story for another time. And then I went 
in a kind of app development for television. I didn't like that. Then I went into video streaming with some friends. Then I started on my first company, which I tried to make games and that failed miserably. I then started to work for one of my childhood heroes, which made A2 Racer, which was a game which was really a thing in the Netherlands in 1997. That did not make me enough money, so I went into the floral business, <laughs> of all things. And then I went back to having my own company, which is now. And I, well, I haven't released a game with my second company, but I am working for other people making their games. And yeah, that's where we're at right now. One question I wanted to ask, Jamie, you mentioned this creative freedom. That's something I felt myself when I started making games. Like before I started developing games, I wanted to be an architect or an interior designer, typical Swedish here. But I am not really into studying at all. So I started making my own games. And the first thing I felt there was, well, actually I did study like a couple of weeks interior design, but the first thing you ran into there was the budget. When you design stuff in the real world, you have to have a budget and you can't be outside that budget because, you know, money is a real thing. But what I felt when I start developing games is that it's just your imagination that sets the limits. You can do whatever fuck you want. You can design like a, a building made in pure gold hovering above, you know, because physics is not even a thing if you decide it shouldn't be, right? So my question for you as well, Oswald, you said you work for other developers. Comparing the company you're running now versus the one you did before, do you miss that thing where you set your own rules versus now when you work for another company? Yes and no. The thing is, I mostly do consultancy at the moment, which is great because you tell someone else to do the work. It's their money. Okay, it's my responsibility, but it's their money. They will do the work. So it's very relaxed and you are involved with a lot of projects, which actually gives you a more creative side if you look at it in that kind of light, so to speak. And then Jamie too, do you recognize yourself in my little monologue here? Or do you have anything to add to that? This creative freedom, how amazing it is. Having creative freedom is great, but I think there's a very practical element to it as well. Similar to Oswald, I started a company many, many years ago thinking that I was going to run a Kickstarter, make quite a bit of money and, and make a really cool game. And this was during a time where Kickstarter was still very much in its infancy and it was quite easy, you know, quote unquote easy to raise funds from having no particular background. And by background, I mean having sort of no celebrity status, if you like. I'm not a big shot at a big company, which is more likely to garner pledges. But at the time, I was kind of riding high. And then when I started to really understand what it means to run a business, how to run a business and taking a very business-oriented approach and a very competitive creative sector, then I realized that I made a bit of a horrid mistake and uh, I pulled the plug on it to focus on learning a bit more about the indie scene before I try again. And then life took me down a bit of an alternative path. Here I am now with Kittens in Time Space. So this is version two of the company. I took a lot of time out to research the whole process first about how to run a business. Through my postgraduate study, I learned a lot more about running a creative business in a competitive market, yada, yada, yada. 
you don't need to go into the specifics. But now when I started the company, I had goals in mind. I knew exactly how I was going to do it, how I was going to tackle it and use it predominantly in the early years as a vehicle in which to just make some money from contract work. I could have done it as a sole trader, but at the time my wife and I were trying to buy a house and I was advised that if you started a company and just had one year of good profits, you'll get a good mortgage quote. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Otherwise, for a sole trader here in the UK, banks prefer to see three years worth of accounts before you can apply for a mortgage. And I realized that if I do this and just make a bit of money, then I'm good. I'm not making that much money now because I'm back on to a regular sort of paid job through, in the UK, we call it PAYE, which is just, you just pay tax as you earn for a pay packet, which kind of renders the company a bit obsolete at the moment because it's not making any money. But it was useful in buying a house, let's just say. So that required a lot of careful planning and thought to achieve. But now that I've met Oswald, more opportunities are presenting themselves in the collaborative things that we're going to talk about and so on. And it's really exciting to be able to finally be in a position where hopefully it'll become a sustainable business in years to come through careful planning. And on that note, could you tell us more about how did you guys meet and what are you doing together right now, today? It's 2021 we're talking about and the pandemic was still in full effect and there was this meeting kind of thing on the internet called Games Industry Gathering and I met a guy there. I was telling, okay, I'm a freelance game person, I do a lot of stuff and someone thought, hey, I know Jamie. So we got together, Jamie said, I'm making Catpunk and uh, Catpunk needs a card system, it needs a bit of a polish and I immediately jumped on the card system because I know card systems can be very tricky, but I see myself as a very seasoned developer in code. So I knew what kind of patterns I should use for that and what kind of code I could use for that. And I was like, Jamie, let me make that card system. And now we're here. It was almost like speed dating. Oswald and I just had one quick meeting and straight away we kind of hit it off. And I think what really worked in our favor is we have a lot of relatable similar goals that gave us a lot in common in terms of what we wanted to achieve with our own respective companies you know being an indie developer means that you have to rely i think extensively on favors and the free time that people give you purely because we loved our craft we love doing what we do in the hope that at some point something will happen and I like to think of it as baking a load of pies and having a hand in each of those pies and it just takes one of those pies to be really really sweet and then from there you know onwards and upwards that's a very terrible metaphor but my point is I wanted to get <laughs> stuck in in as many different projects as I possibly can without obviously burning myself out in the process which again <laughs> is a very a very negative story which I won't touch upon today but I did it in a way where hopefully what if one of them just took off everything else would just kind of naturally work out in a domino like effect possibly but with oswald i said to him hey i've got a game i don't have any money to pay you i was straight up front with that i don't have any money no budget this is what i would like to do so a bit of a pun here cards on the table <laughs> i would love it if you could consult on us on how to design a collectible card system it's a mechanic that we've been spitballing ideas about and how it would enhance the gameplay give it a little bit of its own flavor and then oswald just decided to go ahead and make the thing i didn't expect that at all <laughs> not to brag but it took me one day wow you're totally bragging 
I know, but... <laughs> the thing is, card systems can be difficult, but if you know what you're doing, then you can make it in a day. If you've got a kind of a design philosophy. And my philosophy for the card system was you want to have a lot of effect dedicated from a small place. So in that vein, I kind of took it like D&D. Like you've got a character sheet, which because it's called Catpunk, it's now a cat character sheet. <laughs> I get it. That sheet then dedicates parts of the game. So a game... Ask the character sheet, can I do this? And if it says yes, then it will do the thing. And if it says no, it doesn't do the thing. Which is a kind of known pattern in software design. And that's how I was able to make it in a day. So you're right, Jamie, I am bragging. But there's lots of research by other people and lots of proven methodologies that went behind it. So it's not just me, so to speak. No, of course not. I, I completely understand. I was just going to say, firstly, I didn't approve of the whole cat Ractor design. By the way, that's just Oswald injecting his own enthusiastic <laughs> bad humor into his design, which is fine. It's We're in a creative industry. It's about having fun. But normally I would approach things a little bit more professional, using good <laughs> identifiers and class designs and all that kind of stuff. Just You were talking about good programming philosophy. That was my advice. That was my advice that I gave you. <laughs> I appreciate the amount of time that you've sunk into this just through doing a favor. And we kind of know each other. We, we, I think I consider Oswald a friend now. We've been chatting quite a while and I wasn't going to complain. You know, he was doing that work for free. So as far as I'm concerned, you run with it, mate. Yeah. How shall I put this? Can I put on record, Jamie, that your code was already full of puns? Ah, uh-huh. the plot thickens. <laughs> that was accidental. Speaking about the game, we're about to do our pre-release review since we got a copy of the game to try out a little bit. But before we do that, could you just give an elevator pitch of the game for people who haven't had a chance to try it yet, just to give some basic information about what it is and what it's about and what you do in the game and so on. Okay, an elevator pitch. I hate being put on the spot like this, but let me let me try. Okay, so, ding, press button. Catpunk is a 2D action-adventure game with roguelike elements where the player can choose between nine playable cat characters who have differing abilities that allow you to smash and rip and tear your way through a procedurally generated environment. How was that? Very nice. So it's sort of like a cat version of Broforce, almost. Yes, exactly. And it's a good thing you mentioned that because Broforce was one of the sort of initial inspirations for the project. This idea started a long, long time ago. I'm not going to say when because I was advised not to do that when it comes to trying to sell the game. But yes, it started off as a hobby project when roguelikes were still very much the go-to game, which was strengthened only by things like Nuclear Throne, Enter the Gungeon, Broforce, although that's not roguelike-y in a sense, but the gameplay kind of has attributes similar to that of roguelikes. Well, I use the term roguelite rather than roguelike because I think it's more of an appropriate definition because it has roguelite elements in it, but I like to think it's its own own thing, in a way. So, for those who don't know, roguelike and light, could you just give an elevator pitch for those genres as well, so that everyone's on the same page? The difference between a roguelike and a roguelite is, in a roguelike, you die and you lose everything, and in a roguelite, you die and you retain a bit. Hmm. So where would the Souls games fit into that? 
There will be a light then, because you keep your items. Souls-like is not rogue because the environment is not procedurally generated. So that's that's an RPG. Ah, that's the difference. Hmm. Very punishing deaths and then being procedurally generated is what the rogue thing is about. Yeah, if we look at it from that perspective, Dark Souls and what was the other called? Bloodborne. Those are more like RPGs. If you have a rogue-like, then you don't have that RPG element because you don't retain anything once you've died. Maybe you'll gain access to next level, but that's all you get in a rogue-like. And of course, this is a sliding skill because when you have a rogue-like, there's this RPG element that lets you retain a bit of the things you've got before. So if you've got some loot, maybe you retain some loot. If we look at it from a Dark Souls perspective, you can lose your souls, but you won't lose your skills. How far from release do you reckon you are? That is a massive question mark. If we had money to finish the project right now, I would say give us about a year. As we don't have the money, we kind of... A year? The game is actually quite far along in development in the sort of foundation. Yeah, I think it looks... I mean, I played it both a couple of days ago, sober, and today, drunk. And I think it's just... (laughs) I think it's a very solid game. Oh, thank you. And I have a follow-up question on that, but when do you think it's ready? So Oswald and I are working really hard to try to figure this out. And as I mentioned, Oswald is helping us, or helping me rather, to polish the prototype that we have. We've been pitching to publishers for quite a while and we got quite far with a few, I won't name them, but they're quite popular publishers and we always get knocked back at the end stage or rather we were getting knocked back at the last sort of final stage which was more about the specifics of the game and its target audience which whilst there is a clear target audience it was about adding features that we don't really have the resources to do. One of the biggest things that you might have even seen yourself when you play it is the ability to play with more players. So co-op was a big wish list item because I think it's one of the norms and systems that most games are expected to have if they're going to maximize sales, a multiplayer component of some form. And that was the common theme identified with all of the publisher feedback is there needs to be some kind of multiplayer component, whether it's online or local or whatever. So again, this is something I turned to Oswald to, like, what do you think of this? And we've been spitballing ideas. But it all depends if we can find some funds to keep going. My hope is to release it within the next couple of years, if possible. I've got friends in industry who've kindly offered to port it to all the platforms. And there are routes to market. But the length of how long it's going to take to get it to market is going to vary considerably depending on where we are with money and so on. And Oswald, I think you were going to add something there. Sorry to jump in. No, no, no. It's your game. You should be jumping in. What I haven't told Jamie yet is... I've been working on the marketing side because my clients wanted to know a bit about marketing. And the thing with marketing is that the marketing is interwoven in how the game is made. So if you want a certain kind of marketing, like say content marketing, you want your game to have good moments that are entertaining, even though you're not playing the game. This is just an example. Mm. Looking at that and looking how far the game already is, as Jamie said, if we get the funds, I think a year would be very doable. If we don't, then we might need to use some kind of growth marketing. And then I think two years, maybe. Maybe we should add here that Jamie is working to get it on Steam. So we wanted to make this a bit. Wishlist on Steam, please. Or wishlist now on Steam. Yes, hashtag wishlist. (laughs) Hashtag wishlist on Steam.
Actually, my next question was, what's your PR approach? Because when I play the game, like, I assume... So my uh, internet got messed up uh, earlier, so I don't know if you guys talked about it. But when you have the character select menu, there are Tekken characters. Are those placeholders or... <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's what I figured. <laughs> uh, yeah, I gave you a build that had Tekken characters as placeholder to show that there is a character selection screen. That version is not publicly accessible on the internet, so Namco, please don't send lawyers to my house. <laughs> I've since replaced those now with just a blacked out silhouette of a cat character, which was the build that I sent you very, very recently, with the updated music on the title theme as well, which is, I'm hoping to get your opinion on, because as a massive metalhead, combining heavy metal with synthwave was a big thing that we wanted to do with this game and i'll do a massive quick shout out to david grimerson who recently joined us he calls himself dave lopan from the big trouble in little china movie he makes music entrance themes for wrestlers on the independent scene and he's had some stint doing some stuff for a big wrestling company which i won't name just in case i get that wrong he just wants to make games so he joined us to make that title theme cool I was going to say, I love the music. I thought it was really cool. But I didn't play your latest build because I got it earlier today. But I will play it and then I can give some feedback. But the the previous build you sent me was awesome. Oh, thank you. The the music and how it's implemented and all that. And I figured it was placeholders with the Tekken characters. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but overall, I felt the game felt so polished. For our listeners who probably have very little idea of what the game is about, Rune, do you want to give your experience from start to finish of what you did? When I was drunk playing it or when I was sober? <laughs> Either one, I suppose. Both. Drunk. Drunk. <laughs> totally drunk. I want to know what it's like when you're drunk. I know it's uh, today. I passed out halfway through. No, but I, it's, uh, at first glance, it's not the type of game that I would be into for the same reason why I got into it. Damn, it's addicting. Fuck me. It sort of reminded me a little bit of Hotline Miami, the difficulty of the game. And also the music, the Grammy straight away. I love anything rock, really. So when I start playing it, and I played it with keyboard and mouse, which I want to play with. Is it playable with a controller? Yes. Yes, it is. Yep. Yes. Okay. So that's what I will do next time because I am not really a PC. If not, it will be. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. It would be difficult to release on console if it wasn't. It was difficult, a little bit difficult to play with a mouse and keyboard because I'm not used to play games like that. But next time I will play with a controller. But I think the hook was really awesome. The difficulty thingy and then you make your way down and then you die and then it's like, fuck, what did I die? Sometimes you don't even know what you're dying from. Obviously when the first time you play it. And I think that's cool because... That's a bug, we'll fix it. Yeah, well, I think it's... I mean, I like difficult games, so I think that's pretty cool. Because then I, I saw these sort of blades that killed me. So then I learned, okay, those silver boxes have a fucking blade coming in and out from them. So I will be careful next time around. I love the shake effect of the camera when things explode. I got hooked in like five minutes, and I think that's a really good sign. But, you know, like I said, these are the types of games that I'm terrified of because I can't stop playing them. And I thought it was awesome. And <laughs> Yeah, the, again, the music just made it so much better. It was really cool. Oh, what was the question? What kind of game was it? I just, like, praised it to the heavens. Yeah, so explain what you do in the game or what is it like. Well, first you start up and there's a character select thingy from Capcom and they will sue you guys. <laughs> so you pick a character, but in the demo you can pick one character. 
it will be replaced with a silhouette, I think you said. But anyway, that was quite funny though. You guys had those placeholders at this point. And then you sort of make your way down through these levels and they're really difficult. And like I said, sort of hotline Miami in terms of difficulty. And you guys say it's a rogue light game. But you have guns, you have like a melee weapon and the enemies and explosions. And you can sort of... It also reminded me a little bit of Steam World Dig, which is a game I really enjoy, where you can sort of dig your way down through blocks. In hindsight, I feel like it was kind of like a combination with Steam World Dig, Hotline Miami, and a roguelike type of game. And those types of games are really cool. And the rock and roll music on top of that made it really... It felt like kick-ass to play it, and that was really cool. You're very, very kind. That's the nicest feedback someone has given so far. For a long time, I was battling imposter syndrome and self-doubt, which I think every indie developer probably experiences at least once in their careers. And through positive feedback or validation is what I'm thinking of. I just need that constant validation that what I'm doing is right. And that highlights the importance of playtesting and, and having people play the game as much as possible to help push it forward and for a long time it wasn't played by anyone in the public really and that's when it started to really creep in so having that feedback from you now is very reassuring and if anything it's going to make me want to make time today rather than spend time with my family tonight i think i'm just going to open up unity <laughs> and start doing some stuff because the adrenaline i get comes from feedback like that yeah yeah i totally get it i'm curious you had these placeholders in the version i played the character himself, is that the main design of the characters or is that also a placeholder? It's almost final. So one thing we've lacked up until fairly recently was a concept artist. So we've got a team of, I say a team, it's just myself, my co-founder of Kittens, Dan, and loosely Oswald working on the project at the moment. Dan is like my other half in the art department so he's my forever artist friend and I'm just the programmer guy. For a long time we've just sort of ignored trying to do it properly for the sake of prototyping it so Dan went ahead and mocked up a character and I was just like yep that's good that works for now. There were some setbacks and drawbacks from that and the major disadvantage was like at some point I just felt like it wasn't working. Actually, in hindsight, I didn't like the hair and Dan would go back and revise like several sprite sheets and we were doing this endless limbo state of repeat, thinking that it was making the character better, but what we actually needed was a concept artist. So we managed to find a student based in Germany who approached me asking for an internship. She's a really, really, really wonderful person who kindly took time out to help us visualize the designs. That's now done. We just need to actually pixelate them now. So he will change again to reflect the fact that he is an agile cat character. So he's going to look a bit more lightning-like with trainers and a long ponytail that kind of flickers as you move forward. Th things like that. Ah, cool. Cool. Something that it brought to mind when I played it is Jazz Jackrabbit 2. I don't know if you played it. It's an old, I think, 90s game where you basically are a rabbit character, sort of like Sonic, except with guns. So you shoot stuff and then you get to the end. But instead of going horizontal, this goes vertical instead, which forces you to think a little bit different. I really appreciate that it's sort of a unique take on that sort of platforming game, if you can compare it, I suppose. Can I please nerd out about Jazz Jack Rabbit 2 for a moment? 
Yeah, sure. Because Jess Jackrabbit and Jess Jackrabbit 2 are a bit of my childhood. The comparison with Sonic was that obvious that in Jess Jackrabbit 2 there's an homage level to Sonic. It, it even ends with an Eggman boss at the end. Oh, I have to check that. I, I don't remember that. Yeah, I, I think it's like in the third episode. It has the Back to the Future parody on it. That ends in an Eggman boss. To hook into Catpunk, there might be a slight reason why I went with Catpunk. Just because it got into the nostalgia part of my brain. <laughs> because you're right, it does feel a bit like Jazz Jackrabbit. And maybe that's also why I jumped on. The card system you guys talked about before, my internet connection whacked out, so I didn't really hear all of that. But is that card system in the demo you sent us? Did you guys talk about that at all, or did you explain how it works? To answer both questions, no, it's not in yet. The problem with card system is it's only in there once it's fully implemented. And yes, it works. The character sheet part works quite well, if I may say so myself. But it also needs a UI component where you assign the cards to a cat. That part we'll have to figure out some way because you can do it easily with a mouse, but then it's not usable on consoles. You can make something with buttons. So you select a card, then hit a button, and then it's assigned to a cat. But that's a bit clunky. So we are still working on that. I think the idea Jamie had was to just have a button turning the cards on and off for the prototyping. Yeah, not an ideal solution, but the rationale for that was working within constraints, which we all know is a big factor in all of our development stories, is time. I would love to have gone ahead and made an actual working GUI for this, but sadly uh, it would take quite a bit of time for me to do that because I'm effectively wearing many hats at this point. To meet Oswald halfway is to make a, a little switch that kind of hard codes the process a little bit. So the game that you're playing at the moment, the vanilla version if you like, doesn't have the card system in but the updated version will have a button that you can just press on the keyboard and all of a sudden you've got three cards equipped that mutate that character in different dynamic ways affecting things like speed the amount of jumps you can do you should definitely have a card that gives you nine lives like a cat and another one that has the reverse of a cat you know the cats always land on its leg one that makes it lands on its back all the time <laughs> <laughs> We do have a card kind of like that, I think. The defibrillator card. Yeah. So all the cats have nine lives by default. And when your cat character runs out of lives, it's eliminated from the entire game or the run, if you like. So you have a total of 81 lives in that sense. And all of the cats have different base stats. Like we just group them into light, medium and heavies. So heavies are slower, but deal area of effect damage and can take a little bit more damage before you die, which is not really illustrated in the current version because mostly everything is fatal. The light versions obviously are the antithesis of that. They run faster, they're more agile, they deal less damage, but you have speed. Where things I think are going to get interesting, and this is something that Oswald and I will be spending a lot of time on, will be these cards that add or take away certain aspects of the character. By that, I mean Dash Cat, the cat that's in there at the moment, can double jump. And every time you add an extra jump card to them, so they can hold a maximum of three, you might decide to add three extra jumps. So you could jump six times before you have to land again and things like that. It's very, very random in a way, but it just adds to the chaos. 
that we're trying to create and just make it all about fun and pushing forwards without really thinking about where you're going is just a relentless dash to the bottom of the map trying not to worry about what's beneath you because cats are agile they land on the feet as you say and if you get into a rhythm like hotline miami like the more experienced players that you can see on youtube who get the highest score and stuff they it's like a dance almost they go through the door they kill the first character with their bare hands they grab a gun they shoot one they throw that gun they grab a bat they throw the bat it's like a constant dance all the way to the end and that's kind of what i wanted to create here in a sense if you add six jumps to the cat i was gonna ask about the the level design from that perspective but it's right it's more like the chaotic and funness of it so that wouldn't really matter anyway and it's procedurally generated levels yes yep i didn't think about it when i played it the first and the second time i didn't think about if the levels look different or not if you look at it from a game design perspective jumps Well, they do matter because you'll need to use them to traverse over things, but they are not in there to overcome an obstacle like jumping over a gap because it's all going down. I even tested with infinite jumps at some point. That's really fun to do. If they can get infinite jumps, that won't break the game because it doesn't matter for your health. And you will still be somewhere and something can still attack you when you're jumping. I want to praise the game one more time, but I'm worried you guys will leave the podcast and just go and work on the game based on my previous praise. But when I played it, I mean, I've already developed and published four games, and I think the vanilla version I played already is way better than anything I've ever made. I was just sort of thinking while I was playing it, like, I consider myself an indie developer. What do you guys see yourself at? We have talked about it on a previous episode. Like, I almost want to divide the indie scene into like a single A developer like me, a double A developer, a triple A developer. Like I said, way better than any game I've done. Do you consider yourself at least a double A developer? Can't you feel that what you have done is like, it's better than most shit that comes out, even my stuff? <laughs> <laughs> That's a. I think quite a hard question to to answer. I mean, I think when you're an indie, if you call yourself an independent developer, I think the definition, broadly speaking, matters or is defined differently depending on who you ask. We can look at the term independent as someone who is just an individual, has no sort of third party component attached to him which gives you that freedom to do whatever is that you want but i think when you think of today's indie developers there's a gray area that includes experimentation creative flair we get to decide what constitutes a compelling gameplay experience which we learn through studying others approach to game design and game development the freedom to experiment to take risks like Cuphead as a good example because of the unique art style that it incorporated I think made that game and if you pitch that maybe to I'm probably just making this up here but I imagine if I wanted to adopt something quite experimental like a 1920s-esque Disney aesthetic for Catpunk and I pitched that to a big developer they'd be like what that's gonna take you ages to draw that we didn't have the money for that but they did it anyway and it paid off for them as we know big time so I think they probably had those same discussions should we adopt this or should we just go with pixel art or something very vector art based or whatever but they stuck with their guns and did it anyway what that means to me is someone who has worked in industry or is running their own company i consider myself maybe somewhere stuck between the two 
mainly because of my job, because I have to help graduates find work in industry and therefore I have to make sure that my skills are at a stage where if they're going to be applying for big companies they can pass programming tests they pass the interview stages showing good programming practice and all that kind of stuff means a lot to me anyway to try and be a good programmer and try and stick to some good principles whilst breaking a few rules here and there because why not and that becomes a debate about optimization on today's sort of contemporary hardware that would be my answer. So I'm not quite triple A. I don't think I'm quite single A. I'm me. Double A. <laughs> to weigh in on this subject, I don't see myself either as indie or triple A. I just see myself as a professional. For me, indie and the whole single A, double A, triple A is more of a thing. You connect to your game and the kind of price point it will be at. Because you can't make a game on your own. Even indies need other people. And as we see in the market nowadays, the whole idea of being indie is already kind of broken down. It's completely different from what it was 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, we had Thomas Was Alone. Thomas Was Alone was a fantastic game made by a guy learning Unity. And now he's making Tron for Disney. Look it up. It's true. Mike Bethel is making Tron for Disney. If we look at the games we're making, we'll say, okay, we're an indie or a single A, double A, triple A. We'll give that definition by the time the game actually comes out. Well, I think it's a double A already. So take it or leave it. Oh my gosh, I can't take all this positive feedback. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's a good thing they can only listen, right? Because my face is going red, I think, from (laughs) the love and the attention that you're giving the game. It's a good reason to wishlist now on Steam. It will be eventually on Steam, and when it's there, please wishlist on Steam. It's really hard to get this bit in, but please, wishlist now on Steam. Did I say wishlist on Steam yet? Okay, wishlist on Steam. <laughs> yeah, wishlist on Steam. We'll make sure to add the link in the description. Yeah, absolutely. So during this period of developing this game, Is there anything, any lessons you've learned from it or something like mistakes you made or something that you could have done better or something that now in hindsight is much clearer? How about everything? You learn (laughs) everything. You make all the mistakes. I'm in a lucky spot where I'm also consulting for other people. So I can take the general knowledge and see if it works on my clients. I can tell my clients, okay, this is the idea of what you should be doing. And then I see them next week. And then we'll see, okay, did this work? Usually it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And in that case, you'll quickly adapt. And then you know more. You make all the mistakes. Amen to that. Yeah. I'll just say that I consider myself to be a lifelong learner. I'm always recording in that sense. So for me, I like to watch YouTube videos that are educational in some way to me that's going to help me expand my knowledge in something. It's mostly maths today. I like to study a little bit of maths because I think that's one of the important skills that any developer should have an understanding of, especially if you're trying to break in to the industry as in trying to find work at a company because programmers are usually quite relentlessly tested on their math skills. So I think it's one of those skills I think I need to learn. The problem with this is I find it very difficult to switch off. My wife reminds me of this all the time. I can't sit downstairs and watch TV all day. I would want to 
do something that's going to keep my brain engaged. And I think the reason for that is mainly because I was scared of my brain turning into mush when I'm older. So I read a random study a long time ago about, about increasing your, or sort of rather decreasing your chance of developing Alzheimer's later in life, and that is to keep your brain engaged in logic problem solving so playing chess for example was one of the things that it recommended to do i don't play chess but it just gets you in that logic and problem solving mindset i've also learned as well that as a very forgetful person which is why i've got a ginormous whiteboard here that i have to use to remind myself to do things is that forgetful people is a sign of intelligence so for anyone who finds themselves forgetting things because they just forget, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're not intelligent. It means that your brain is constantly engaged to the point where information just gets lost in the noise. That's good to know because I forgot my child in the car today and my wife got really angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I wasn't going to use that kind of example, but each to their own. You do you. <laughs> Yeah, maybe the biggest thing you learn actually is how to balance game development and kids. So how do you do that? Yeah, I'm curious to know too. I cheated. Basically, I just cheated. On your wife? <laughs> no, not on my wife. On life. <laughs> With computer parts, yeah. Yeah, I basically married Lara Croft. Oh, nice. She wasn't Lara Croft when I first married her, but at some point she was like, okay, I'm going to switch jobs. And then she switched jobs and made more money than the both of us. Ooh. So I was like, okay, yeah, you know what? I'm going to make this company work and I am mostly profitable. I am not making a full salary on my own. But from there, that's how you pay for the kids. Making time for the kids is a whole different matter, but the time I have to myself, which is four days a week, which I can put into my company or in making games, that's the only time I get. So there are three other days being the weekend and daddy day. That's the day I take care of the kids. That's how you try to balance it a bit. And energy-wise, you just hope your kids don't wake you up too much at night. And Jamie, you have kids too. How do you balance this? I have a young son who at the time of recording this is a little over 19 months. And yeah, it's safe to say that it's changed our lives permanently for better, for worse. No regrets at all. I love my son to death, but it has severely impacted the time that I have in the evening. So I used to be able to code a lot when I finish work. You know, my wife has always been really supportive of me and trying to grow the company. She knows how much this means to me. So she's always been quite tolerant of that and allowed me to finish work at five o'clock, eat dinner, and then just crack on with coding stuff. And that's how Catpunk initially was developed so quick because I was able to sink a lot of time on it. After my son was born, that completely changed. And of course, I completely understand that when you have a child, it's going to change anyway and you have no choice in the matter. And I would never wish that time away, of course. I love spending time with my son, but it just means that if I want to do game dev these days, it has to be when he goes to bed. So I'm very strict about his bedtime. Eight o'clock, we get him ready for bed, he goes in, and then my wife just helps him get to sleep. I usually then start working on stuff, but I'm at reduced capacity now because of it and it has reduced my work ethic a little bit because at that point I'm running on fumes there's nothing really left in the tank but I do it still because I love what I do and if it's going to work if I want to grow this business I have to time box it somehow 
so that time for me is critical even if it's just an hour and you don't get anything done apart from a few notes i think the important thing is just to keep doing it keep pushing forward and hopefully something might change for the better later at least that's how i rationalize it i just push forward and persevere yeah that's how you have to look at it one of my games kind of died in development when i was still working my floral business job i was making this really awesome game and it just died because i was working nine to five then going home taking care of the kids and then it was like say nine o'clock and then you have to still do something that wasn't happening and rune how do you do it well when we lived in sweden my wife didn't have a visa so she couldn't work so i worked on my own company because i made some money from the previous games i released but i also worked part-time in a facility we talked about this before like three to four days a week and then i will work the rest of the day before we had a child i worked every waking hour because here in japan i do acting and modeling so i don't work every day i maybe work once or twice a week if even at the moment nothing i feel my career is over here but i do get a lot of extension fees from the previous works i've done with commercial modeling and stuff royalties yeah royalties yes so I'm living off of that and we live in a really like a shanty house. It's so cheap. It's dirt cheap. And we said we're going to live here until my wife gets her visa. And she works just part time, like three days a week. So we're fine. Like financially, it's not like a fancy pansy life, but it's just like it's fine. And I asked her, like, can you just let me work on my next game for as long as we're in Japan? And when we move back to Sweden, I will get a proper job or hopefully at that point I can pitch it to someone or it's ready or whatever. So I work eight hours a day on it now. So I get up like five-ish in the morning and I go to the gym, come back home. And then that's when I wake up my wife and kid. And then we do like breakfast together and I take the kid to kindergarten. And then I go home and work eight hours straight. And then I go and pick him up again because then my wife, she go to work around nine-ish. And she finishes. Well, that's the three days she goes to work. The other two days she bring him to school and back. And then the weekends it's just like nothing no time for game development at all but sometimes she hang out with her friends and then that's a pr- opportunity for me to stay home and work and i like those days i get like a proper 12 14 hour shift at working on my games because she will be out with the kid so that's it it's like you guys said your children is like the center of everything and then you just have to try to make it work around that so in this case i have to get up really early so i can get the gym hours in I really need that otherwise i can't function as a human being so i do that early morning just so i can get home and start working because it's very important that i start working as soon as he goes to kindergarten so i get at least those eight hours of work every day i think that's quite an inspiring story and it just kind of shows i think that in some cases we need to be disciplined we do this because we're passionate about it otherwise we wouldn't do it right it's quite unhelpful advice when people always say what's the best thing you could recommend for aspiring developers but i think perseverance is something i quote a lot it carries a lot of positive and negative meaning but you know life as we know is quite unpredictable it can get in the way and persevering just means you know so long as you've got that drive to to do it you can still make it work yeah i think perseverance also when you fail redefine success that's my main motto you will fail but if you keep evaluating what you're doing what happened, then you can get a long way. 
Redefining success, that's funny. When my Red Colony trilogy came as a physical copy on the Nintendo Switch, a part of me was just like, I'm satisfied now. This is like, I feel like a fucking success. Yes. Life box ticked. It was just like, if I die tomorrow, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, it's just this constant, you want to make more and more and more. The feedback you get from... Any positive feedback, that's just what keeps you going forever. You talked about Flash previously, Jamie, I think, when you were younger. I did Flash films on Newgrounds.com, if you guys remember that website. Oh, I do. Yes. Yes. It's still active. They are using Unity and videos. Oh, my. Yeah. I did Flash films for that, and that was awesome. And that was so fun. One of my videos made it to the front page at like 120,000 views at this point. But it was just like, it has the same sort of style as my games. People either hate it or love it. Like those comments, those few very positive comments, like someone wrote like, I wish you were my dad. And I was just like, <laughs> wow, this is awesome. I just spent like 18 hours on making this three minute flash films when I should have studied because I was in school back then. But instead, I just fuck studies and made this stupid film. And then you get that one positive feedback or whatever. And it just makes everything worth it. It's so much fun to have that feedback. And like you said, that's what keeps you going. You'll never stop. I am currently, for my face, your music, I am doing a content marketing campaign. And it's fantastic for getting feedback. Every time I put out a video, by the way, Oswald sings on YouTube. It's the channel I uh, use to push content for marketing for my face, your music. It's a small channel, it's growing since January, but I already get only positive comments. Which is not something to brag because it's a small thing. And thankfully, YouTube first gives you the positive people and later on the not so positive people come in. It's those comments that keep you going. Yeah, focus on the positive ones, it's enough. And I think that's sort of a nice way to round off this episode. Man, it was so much fun. I wish we could go on for two more hours. Yeah, me too. Speaking of being addicted to work, this is somewhat work-related what we're doing now here at this podcast. But uh, I'm currently at a barbecue party and I <laughs> carved that one hour to sit here and talk with you guys. But that's what you do when you're passionate about something. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you guys. Really fun. I absolutely agree. I love doing this podcast, so it's really a passion project as well, besides game development. So you're most welcome back whenever you have more updates about the game or anything else you want to announce. But before we end the episode, is there anything, I guess a Steam wishlist link perhaps, but anything you want to promote or anything you want to say before we end the episode? Yeah, okay. First, I'll say hashtag wishlist on Steam when it's eventually on Steam. The only thing I forgot to mention, which is quite an important thing to mention, is Oswald has also been helping me out on another project, which actually is going to be released later this year, which is not related to Catpunk. Catpunk is like my life's work in that sense, but we have been working on something else called Kickback Slug, which was a game jam project that just quickly blew up into something that we didn't expect. That's being released later this year, hopefully in the summer, on every console as well again through a very nice bunch of people who kindly offered to publish it for us through working on a previous project my hope is that will be the stepping stone into helping catpunk find an audience and find a publisher and through oswald's support we'll be able to hopefully continue to work on the game and polish it up and get it out there 
So that game is called Kickback Slug, Cosmic Choreo. It is coming out on Steam in July and followed shortly by Nintendo Switch, PS4, 5, Xbox One, Series S, X. You know, all of the X's, all of the Xboxes. Wish this on Steam. All of your X's is going to get what copy to <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> Of course, absolutely. I've been very transparent about Kickback Slug being a really cool passion project and it's not a game designed to make us money. It's a game that we just put a lot of effort into and a bit of fun. If it does make money, great. If you want a Steam key, just let me know. You can have one. Perfect. Thank you. We could do another episode at a later time to review that before it's released, perhaps. Yeah. Absolutely. Then it will become hashtag buy now on Steam. Yes. Yes! I just want to say, this has been loads of fun. I've been very nervous because this was my very first podcast. Thank you very much. And you have been a great guest, so thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Rune, again for being my co-host as always. And thank you, everyone, for listening. See you next week. Bye! Bye! Goodbye!